we might um, define this practice we're doing together in different ways. And uh, maybe that the longer or the more connection you've had with this kind of tradition, the more sophisticated your definitions might be. We might think in terms of this path, this practice, these teachings as being uh, about wisdom, compassion, liberation. Those three are are kind of often very centrally uh, mentioned within the Buddhist tradition. We might think about peace of mind. I might be more involved in aspects of Buddhist teachings like uh, emptiness. But if we leave aside the jargon of this tradition, and some of you, of course, maybe are coming to something like this for the first time and are already free of all the jargon. So a little bow to you. If we leave aside the jargon, and actually just kind of uh, interrogate our heart. What is it we're here for? What is it we're longing for? What is uh, the soul restless for, we might say? And then it's kind of simpler than that jargon. It's something to do with happiness, ease, peace, love, Connection, depth, intimacy, understanding. Maybe one or some or all of those if you're greedy. But something that communicates itself in the language of the heart's actual longing rather than some abstracted idea of some noble result of this path. Because that's where we're working, right? In our own hearts. I was just listening to an interview, maybe you heard it on Radio 4 a couple of weeks ago. Jarvis Cocker was interviewing Leonard Cohen. And Leonard Cohen's like a lifelong hero of mine since I was about 14. And he described his creative process and he quoted Keats. So here I am quoting Radio 4, quoting Leonard Cohen, quoting Keats. And he described it as working in the, in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. Kind of, uh, kind of stark, poignant, and yet quite beautiful phrase. You know, the heart as this tender territory. Sometimes, you know, painful, messy territory. And yet also the territory of our longing, the territory of promise, the territory of love, ease, fulfillment, grace. So that's where, well, that's where actually we could say that's where we begin in that longing. That's actually the way our practice unfolds. And that's the fruition of our practice. This territory of, you know, the, the heart's desire 
for that rest, that peace, that ease. Teachings tell us, and if we uh, attend carefully, our own experience confirms to us that something of the nature of those beautiful qualities of that love, of that happiness, isn't really out there somewhere. That it's that it is the territory of the heart. That it's something about not getting and having and pursuing and becoming something else in order to be happy. But rather something that's possible in the transformation of our relationship with life. Something about the very immediacy of this being alive. There's a lovely line from the Sufi poet Hafiz. He says, uh, since happiness first heard your name, it's been running through the streets looking for you. And yet how easily we get that the wrong way around and it's us running through the streets looking for some idea of happiness, some elusive happiness, some happiness that arrives momentarily in the getting, having, doing, becoming something that we want. And then there's something else to get, have, become. So we find, sorry, Rakan, and if you don't have a medical reason, if you do, then it's fine. Otherwise, okay. Could you lean against uh, maybe? I just, yeah. I mean, if you're really in pain and you need to lie down, it's okay. Otherwise, I'm. Uh, I don't feel able to give teachings to people lying down unless it's for some medical reason. It's one of the things the Buddha told the monks. He said, "Never give teachings to people when they're drunk." Or lying down. And I don't really count myself as a very close follower of all the Buddha's instructions. But somehow those two things kind of make sense to me. So unless, you know, if it's a medical need. He did make an exception in medical need. He said if people are dying, you can give them teachings lying down. So we find that we've, we find ourselves in this kind of outward orientation for that which we're longing for. And we find ourselves fundamentally outwardly orientated to what I've just been calling, you know, having, getting, doing, becoming, searching for, trying to get hold of. And yet the, the kind of intuition that that which we're really longing for isn't somehow out there to be gotten. That's why we're all here, right? Because somehow we've, we've come to, to the end of that delusion. Maybe not the end, but we've come to, at least to the beginning of the end of that delusion. Right? There's some recognition that just the outer pursuit of 
kind of isn't satisfying. Uh, Hence what we might call the inner pursuit. So I'd just like to explore that a little bit. That sense of how come we're so outer-orientated and what to do about it. In order to know this, uh, this relief, this, what the Buddha called the sure heart's release, this heart's ease that we're longing for, this intimacy with life, this capacity to respond. It seems like at birth or before birth, we're in some kind of um, undifferentiated condition. There is some kind of experience after birth, at birth, before birth even. We don't need to go as far as many lives, although that's kind of uh, sometimes included. But just in terms of, and some of you may have um, in various kinds of psychotherapeutic work or body work, you know, in some way accessed prenatal memories. Obviously, they're not the kind of memories that we uh, associate with normal memory because they're the memory of an, an, a kind of experience that's undifferentiated. So in the womb and shortly after birth, there's no sense of world. There's no sense of other. There's some kind of... Um, not really unconscious, and yet we wouldn't really say conscious in the way that we understand it, kind of um, yeah, undifferentiated intimacy with life. And various, you know, psychology in various ways has explored and explained some of that. But then, and then we go through a process of differentiation. We learn to distinguish, first, mother, as the world, and then we get a bit more sophisticated, and rather than just mother, there's one thing uh, one psychologist friend always says, and looking back at the early relationship with mother, you know, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. So we learn to differentiate the world to greater and greater degrees of complexity. And again, if you're familiar with with child psychology or developmental psychology, it's very interesting that way. It's quite skillfully and clearly um, understood and explained. Now, just the different stages of differentiation until we end up with a more or less functional sense of differentiation of the world. And the main differentiation, you know, we can differentiate between everything, but the main differentiation is between me and all the rest. That's the beginnings, that's what we first differentiate in other, mother. And the beginnings of some sense of capacity for self-reflective awareness. And it's one of the things that defines being human, is that we have this capacity not just to experience like all of conscious life can experience, right? but to, to know we're experiencing, to 
self-reflectively experience, to point to our experience, to describe our experience, to relate to our experience. That's a kind of extraordinarily, an extraordinary developmental uh, process, evolutionary process. And then we get to be a more or less functional adult with this capacity to differentiate, to conceive me and the world, as well as all manner of finer distinctions with me broken down into bits, my history, my my, uh, needs, my relationships, my mind, my heart, my feelings, my uh, body, my, my, my. And the very nature of that differentiated way of experiencing the world is that in the differentiation we look out and we see other. And because of this fundamental intimacy, we might just invoke the sense of the whole universe as intimacy, as the unfolding of this some kind of extraordinary, dynamic, creative process that just gives rise to itself endlessly, creatively. Some of the ways it gives rise to itself are as all of us. If we look beyond all the differentiation that we make and that we distinguish and that we live in and that we reinforce in our thoughts, we might sense into some awe at the... Uh, I hesitate to use the word oneness, but I'll use it despite its imprecision. What we might sometimes feel to be, let's say, the oneness of life. So, we seem to have gone through this developmental process from an undifferentiated state that we can't usually consciously remember because there's no differentiation to remember. Everything we remember, everything we can recall to conscious memory involves some kind of differentiation. And we seem to have gone through this process out of that, of, of evolving the capacity for differentiation, which inevitably is an outward focused, a differentiating focused way of experiencing me and you, this and that, before and after, here and there. All those differentiations that give us our sense of time, before and after, of space, here and there, and of relationship, me and you, this and that. And then, as I say, by virtue of the fact that we're here, we've started to get to the end of the usefulness of that evolutionary leap or evolutionary process. We've started to intuit that it's, or I'm suggesting that we're here because we've started to intuit that it's pretty amazing being able to differentiate and respond to life like this and yet it's also kind of limited 
If the only way I can know life is in terms of here and there, this and that, me and you, before and after, then I'm condemned to live in the separation of that differentiation. And so we, from this process from undifferentiated to differentiated, we start to orientate towards or intuit the possibility of what we might call a post-differentiating existence. A little bit clumsy. We might, or we might, so we might intuit the possibility of experiencing life beyond differentiation. And that's certainly a way we might define this kind of practice. Right? As a way of navigating the evolutionary process that takes us beyond differentiation. That sounds pretty kind of cool, a bit geeky. And just, just to kind of, if you can get underneath the, the slightly clumsy language of it. And take it more inwards. The possibility of a way of experiencing and participating in life. Beyond the differentiations that we've uh, got so used to that they seem normal. They seem like the only way there is to experience. And so when we start to talk about beyond differentiation, beyond time, beyond space, beyond separation... That might sound very confusing, or it might sound very inspiring, or it might be that there's uh, all kinds of reference points in your own experience, on your own practice, that kind of orientate you there, to that possibility. And because I don't want that possibility to appear too um, abstract, just as we sit here now, how easily we, we differentiate you and you and you and you and you here and there. And yet, if we let ourselves look what, more carefully, more heartfully, more honestly, more directly, we might just have a sense of what we could call a, a here-ness. That includes all our differentiations. A way in which we're participating in this moment, this life, like this. We have the capacity to differentiate, but it would be a shame if that was the only capacity we manage to develop. So our practice together, our coming back from our abstractions, or we could call them differentiations, in the way that we've been exploring today, our unhooking from that usual (coughs) way of using our minds, to set up a lot of stuff about here and there, this and that. 
past and future. Me and it and them and all of that stuff. To keep unhooking from that and coming back to something more direct, immediate, visceral, alive. Where we're not just running down the old habitual track of differentiating, we could say describing, interpreting our experience. The Buddha has a um, model. Somebody, somebody spoke a little bit earlier on this afternoon about what's, uh, what, in, in the, again, in the jargon of the tradition is called the seven factors of awakening. I'm a li- and I'm a little hesitant sometimes to use these kind of lists in teaching because we tend to because we're so good at differentiating, we tend to kind of be quite linear and technically minded. Okay, right, there's seven things. Here we go, let's see how many I've got. And then by that, I'll be able to see how close I am to this awakening thing. And of course, that's not a very helpful way to approach that. So, and of course, when we're, if we're going to speak in terms of a list of things, I can't, talk about them all at the same time. I have to speak about them one after the other, which conveys some sense of linearity. And because we're kind of addicted to linearity in our minds, we also that can also be problematic. Right, do the first one, get the second one. By the third one, that means I'm nearly halfway if there's seven. Right. So you'll have to just forgive me the linearity of speaking about them. And again, just to see if we can look beyond that usual way of using the mind and just to invoke the possibility of the... Actually, we might say, again, I hesitate to use this word, but the the mystical way that these qualities uh, interact or uh, co-emerge, we might say. Co-emerge, that's good. Antidote to linearity. Co-emergence. The seven co-emergent factors of awakening. So I just, among many different models, many different lenses we could look through to explore this territory, I'd want to just take these, these factors as one of those models. And one of the interesting things about them the seven factors. The first one is awareness. Right? The capacity both for the sense of presence, remembering where we are, sati in Pali, for those of you who are familiar with the language of the tradition and want to kind of track it. I say uh, awareness. I mean both the qualities of sati and sampajanya. So sati means that quality of remembering. Oh, here, here, here. Sati literally means to remember. It's most usually translated as mindfulness, which is getting more and more vague amounts of meanings associated with it in our culture. Literally means remembering or bit presence. Oh, here, 
here. Along with the quality of, some, of a real recognition of what's happening. Sampajanya means clear comprehension. If you're not familiar with the, the bits and pieces of these terms, please don't worry. So when I say awareness, that's what I mean, right? That sense of presence, remembering, sati, and the recognition of what's happening. And that's the quality we've been, you know, that's really run through the 24 hours or so. It might seem more like a week to some of you that we've been here for. Remembering where we are and looking to see what's really happening. Coming back from all our uh, proliferations and abstractions and differentiations back to the immediate, visceral. Including right now, right? Here, sitting, paying attention. And that, that first quality is seen as the kind of balancing, mediating quality of all the rest. The most primary quality. If there's no capacity to, to know you're here and to really look and see what's going on, then there's just, there's just there's no stability. There's no real capacity to explore life, consciousness what it is, what it means to be here. And then, in the other six qualities, there are three that are arousing qualities and three that are calming qualities. And very interestingly, to me at least, Buddha lists the three arousing qualities first. Most primary Awareness giving rise to these three arousing qualities. And then come the three calming qualities. And the reason that's interesting, I think, is because we tend to think of this kind of, we tend to associate with meditation calming qualities. Peace, maybe relaxation, concentration, calm. You know, just... Whether it's, you know, now that meditation's slowly kind of uh, becoming more culturally mainstream, you know, a lot of the associations with it are of that kind of, some kind of serenity, calm. One of my teachers would, and uh, uh, still often says, don't get too calm. Don't get too calm. Because at the dead end of calm, teaches a Tibetan model called the elephant path. And the elephant path has all these curves. And on each curve, you can get stuck in the bend. And one of the bends to get stuck in is the bend of calm. And he can kind of tell, you know, when you're getting a bit. Hey! Don't get too calm. So, I think that's also helpful for us. Also because for most of us, some of you are here in in longer retreat of some weeks or months, 
One or two of you were here many months. But for most of us, we're here for a few days. And it might be unrealistic, maybe, probably unhelpful to emphasize too much or to put pressure on ourselves around some expectation of calm, calm, calm. So it's interesting that first the Buddha emphasizes these arousing factors, the arousing factors of this exploration of life. Awareness, one, giving rise to investigation, exploration. What is this that's happening? And in this kind of practice, we and many of you who are familiar with coming here or elsewhere may have often got that instruction to inquire into your experience. Be with what's happening, right? cultivate awareness and inquire into it. And that's a very, very good instruction. But we might say, well, that, but how? It's, I want to investigate my experience, but how? I start to investigate my experience. I think, oh, maybe it's this, maybe that's happening. Oh, but it could be something else. And the investigation just confuses me. And in some of the, the interchanges that we've had today, we've seen that, that possibility to disengage from, from the content, to not explore and investigate in a kind of cognitive or intellectual way, which can just stimulate a lot of ideas. And most of us have got way too many ideas already. But actually, in coming back to explore what we might say, to explore viscerally, kinesthetically, investigating what's happening in the way that it's actually unfolding, sensationally, energetically, emotionally, as well as what kind of thoughts it gives rise to. One can investigate mind directly, investigate thought as it's unfolding. But that really, mostly that requires quite some subtlety and stability and clarity of attention. So for the most part, it's, a, it's much, um, much more clarifying, much more straightforward to investigate your experience in What's you know the felt sense of it? And so when there's irritation, like we were hearing earlier, to actually you know never mind what we're irritated with, but to come back to sensing into that prickly, restless feeling as it's unfolding in your body. To be open to the various associations you may have. Again, like you were saying earlier, that, it, that if it's irritation that's arising, here probably isn't the only place you know it in your life. So investigation by feeling into and being open to the resonances of that, to what you know about it, to what you're reminded of. The investigation that lets your experience 
open up, reveal more of itself. That's a kind of fundamental way that consciousness works. Whatever you give space to, whatever you really uh, uh, let unfold within you, it reveals more of itself. And the third quality, in the Pali it's virya, it's usually translated as energy in English, but energy is a very, very vague term. Again, it's got so many vague connotations. So I was recently just trying to think of a word that kind of conveyed the, the meaning that's there in the Pali without being too vague, as the word energy is. And I thought of the word engagement. Passion actually might be quite good as well. Let's say passionate engagement. To passionately engage with what's happening. Sometimes that's a quality that's a bit missing in meditation scenes. It's certainly something that's a bit missing if... We're too busy with the calming factors, too busy trying just to be peaceful, be calm, then going along with that, usually trying to be nice. Have you been to Buddhist centers where everyone's calm and peaceful and nice? It feels a bit dead, right? Too much emphasis on trying to calming factors, not enough oomph. Not enough passionate engagement. So Buddha, Buddha hasn't got on to calming factors. He's saying awareness, hearness, exploring what's happening, investigating your experience. And now that's a kind of active process. And passionate engagement with. Interesting question for meditators to ask themselves, for us to ask ourselves. What does it mean to really engage with this issue? To keep it alive? To, to invest in exploring my relationship with it? Whatever it is. To give energy to the process. Next factor, we're still on the arousing, joy. Joy, sometimes a bit missing in meditation circles as well. Not this one, of course, but sometimes, right? Joy, that passionate engagement, that... Uh, that um, I don't know this phrase of taking the bull by the horns. You know that phrase? That willingness to kind of meet our life wide awake and head on. It's enlivening, arousing. It gives rise, but it's suggesting in this model, to joy, to the recognition of that in which one can delight. That 
possibility for enjoyment. Enjoyment to, 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 to give rise to joy. That's actually all around us. You know, it's an extraordinary blessing to be here this weekend. I mean, just the basic conditions, you know, it's a crazy world. And quote Leonard Cohen again, once in a, in a concert a couple of years ago that I was at. He reflected to these, all these thousands of people, he said, what good fortune, friends, to be here when so much of the world is plunged in darkness and chaos. And here we are, warm, dry, fed, nourished, safe, and in the company of other deep-thinking, deep-feeling, deeply curious human beings. And we're in kind of beautiful settings. Did you see that sliver of moon this evening in that, the cobalt sky before it just got dark? Did you taste that sweet potato soup? Oh, those reminders of the, the, the vast repository of blessings, of that in which there is to delight. Delight is, is born of engaging with our life, engaging with the soup, engaging with the moon, engaging with our footsteps on the grass. Engaging with this breath in and out. Engaging with the creak of the floorboards when we walk in the corridor. With the flicker of uh, recognition of our shared humanity that we might share in a glance with somebody at the tea station. (coughs) Manifold field of blessings that invite us in. How tragic that our lives so easily pass in self-absorption, in endless differentiation. Me and this, me and that, me and the future, me and the past. That, that we miss the blessings that life's showering on us. It's Hafiz again when he says, uh, O world, there is one regret I'm determined not to have, and that is that I did not kiss you enough. That's the kind of engagement that enjoys, gives rise to joy in the heart. And then, and then Buddha speaks about calming factors. It's very different. It's very different to look at the calming factors of meditation practice, the calming factors of contemplative life, um, on the foundation of these uh, dynamic, engaging, enlivening features. So the first one he speaks about is tranquility. 
on the foundation of these arousing factors, the way joy actually gives rise to, actually supports tranquility. Culturally, we, we're kind of fed a, a, a very low-grade joy. We're expected to, we derive, you know, it's, generally we talk about it as happiness or, you know, that was nice, we say. We watch TV, oh, that was nice. Something on TV was uh, pleasant, nice. The kind of, you know, the vast majority of the population, I think, probably, you know, the kind of, the degree of refinement of joy that we've known is... Uh, I don't know how to speak about it. Crap. It's a bit crap. <laughs> and so sometimes we might actually we might need to train ourselves in the art of enjoyment. Right? Not just the kind of getting, having, doing, becoming kind of getting something that's you know, sort of consumptive uh, gratification. That's the kind, that's a the sort of things that our media and our mainstream culture kind of feed us as joy, consumptive gratification. And yet, you know, whether it's through art or music or nature, you know, those elements of, of beauty or of culture, that, or, or, uh, or in the, the silence of our meditation practice, or in the intimacy with a loved one, or whatever it might be, those ways in which we can actually recognize a a refinement of joy. A joy that isn't consumptive. A joy that uh, has wings in our heart. A joy that we recognize as a light and a warmth in our being. that naturally conduces to tranquility. The tranquility of not having to get something in order to try and get hold of happiness. The tranquility of the Buddha, we might say. The tranquility that this practice invites us into. Not to try and overlay not to try and get peaceful. Not to try and do away with all our thoughts. And that doesn't sound very tranquil. It sounds agitating. The tranquility that arises as, the, the, uh, as a spontaneous fruit of our connection with ourselves. Of awareness. Of investigating of engaging with, of taking delight in. Tranquility gives rise to concentration. That natural calm, that repose of the mind that really conduces to a focus and a depth and stillness. Which then in turn opens out into um, 
what's often translated as equanimity, which again is a little clumsy, I think, as a translation, but that sense of a kind of a, a great stability of being. That calming quality that's a, a sort of unshakable repose. And the, with the vicissitudes of our life, the vicissitudes, the vicissitudes of life itself, the delightful and the sweet happens, and the unwelcome, the unwanted happens. And so that factor of a kind of stable repose that doesn't need to pull and push against, that's got room for what's here, whether it's delightful or whether it's difficult. It's an extraordinary thing, actually, to be really willing to tolerate the unwelcome, the unpleasant to be willing to listen to what it has to say, how it, ha- how it lives in us. It's extraordinarily respectful to life. That's really to, uh, if we invoke the title of this retreat again, to love what is whether we like it or not. Whether it's pleasing to us or not pleasing. I mean, how much control do we have? We've probably spent enough of our life trying, probably fairly unsuccessfully, to get just a whole succession of pleasant, agreeable experiences lined up one after another, and to do away with uh, unpleasant or disagreeable experiences. It's actually quite relieving to reflect that nobody has ever managed that. So maybe I don't need to give myself quite such a hard time that I haven't managed either. What's missing, friends? What could we be so eager to reach out for, grasp for, pursue that isn't already here, that isn't actually confirmed just in our very being alive and conscious? not a question we can answer but it's a question we can really let live in our hearts it's a question I really invite you to hang out with through the rest of the evening what's actually missing is anything missing And if you get lost 
trying to answer the question. Or if you get lost with some other question, come back to where you are. Breathing this air. Walking beneath this moon. Ever since happiness learned your name, it's been running through the streets crying out for you. Listen. Listen to its call. So, some time for some quiet walking or sitting. The moon's above Gaia House. I want to spend some time in the velvety intimacy of the night. And let's have the bell in about 25 minutes. And then we'll have a last short sitting together to end the evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.